Well, welcome, Grace Chapel. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to worship with you and to just enjoy Jesus this morning. We get to soak in his words and examine what his heart is and what he's excited about, what he's uh, doing in our midst, which is really cool. I have a couple of things that I want to share with you before we get started, some really neat things that are happening here at Grace Chapel. Um, Maybe some of you have heard of this organization, maybe some of you hadn't. It's called ECFA, and that stands for, I wrote it down, uh, Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. And this group is kind of the creme de la creme of financial um, stewardship in, in the Christian church world. Well, our very own Steve Skinner has worked tirelessly to acquire our ECFA certification. So now Grace Chapel is um, uh, managing our money in a way that this organization says you guys are doing great. So can we give it up for Steve Skinner for all that hard work? May not seem like much, but it's a bit of a milestone because they have these very stringent standards on how we um, record our money, what we do with our money, and how we talk about it and things like that. So it's a big deal. There's going to be more on our website uh, if you're interested in learning more about what that standard is. The next thing is also exciting. We are um, slowly making some updates and changes to our building. So you, in the next couple of weeks, are going to see some new paint colors and you're going to see some design and decorative work going up in the foyer. So be looking for that. That is going to be fun and exciting as well. And luckily, I don't have to do any of it. Some amazing volunteers have volunteered to do that, so I just get to say nice job. (laughs) Well, this series is called Lost and Found, and um, it has been incredible for me. It's been exciting to see. um, I just have envisioned this series of us being able to just sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching, and not just his teaching, but his heart and his passion and what he's excited about. And so this morning, we get to take a look at the second part of a three-part parable um, that, that Jesus is, uh, talks about in Luke chapter 15. So that's where we're going to be spending some time uh, this morning. Um, really, the whole chapter is built on two verses, okay? And this kind of sums up Uh, What is going on in Jesus' mind and his heart when he hears these words? And I'm going to read them to you uh, quickly, uh, and then we're going to dig deeper into the chapter. This is uh, chapter 15 of Luke, the two verses that kind of sum up why Jesus is going to tell us what he's going to tell us. So you have this uh, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And we could just stop right there and go, what? All the tax collectors and sinners are gathering to hear Jesus. And, and you might read that in the Gospels and you go, oh yeah, you know, a lot of people follow Jesus around and everything. But we need to pause and go, why are these people spending time with Jesus? Why is a tax collector, public enemy number one, uh, the, the, thing, the person everybody hated, and a sinner, the people they don't want to hang around with, why are they spending time with Jesus? And there was a group of people that asked the same question. Enter verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. And they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that's like a good Pharisee way of saying, Jesus spends time with sinners and likes it. Huh? That's bad, right? So this, these two verses kind of sum up what Jesus is going to do. And so you can kind of see Jesus going, okay, it's time. I need to tell these people what's going on. I need to tell these people why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's where we pick up this series. The the truth is, this isn't just about Jesus loving the lost. 
I mean, I think probably most people know that. You ask any random person on the street what they think of Jesus, and they go, oh yeah, great teacher, you know, love the sinner, you know, that's great. Everybody's happy with that. But the Pharisees needed to know why. I mean, this is kind of like when you say to your child, hey, you need to love your sister. Johnny, you need to love your sister. And Johnny goes, yeah, I know I need to love her, but, but tell me why, because she's driving me crazy, you know? And so this is Jesus saying, this is why. You need to lo- Johnny, you need to love your sister, because one day, she is going to be the only one that stands behind you when you start a new job, and she's going to be rooting for you. One day when you break up with your amazing girlfriend in ninth grade, she's going to go, you know, Johnny, it's okay. You're going to get through it. You see, your sister is going to be this companion for you, and you need to treat her with kindness. That's why. So this is Jesus' why he loves the lost. Everyone knows he loves the lost, but why? And this is the tension. It's the same tension that we hold today at Grace Chapel and in the Capital District and in the, in, in the United States. And it's the same tension that the Pharisees held in that moment when they see these hated people, at least people that they hated, gathering around this Jewish rabbi to listen to him teach. What was Jesus' motivation for loving these people? You know, the truth is, is we're his church. We talked about this last week. We are an extension of Jesus. Jesus is our head and we are his hands and his feet. And so this is something that we as a church need to pay very, very close attention to. Why did Jesus love the lost? What was, why was he doing that? Do we, you and I, do we love the lost the same way that Jesus did. It's encouraging to hear the kind of work that Young Life is doing in the ministry because these, this organization is saying, you know what, we are going to love adolescents the way that Jesus loved the lost. And they're putting their money where their mouth was. And I think it's time that Grace Chapel said, what are we doing? Are we loving the lost the way Jesus did? Because he's our head. We are his body. So it's time we connect the dots. And we talked about this last week, and if you haven't, um, if you weren't here last week, I recommend you go to our website, uh, gracecp.org slash sermons, all right? Grace as in Grace Chapel, cp as in Clifton Park, .org as in, we're an organization, I guess, and slash sermons is where you're going to find our messages for this series. But we talk about Jesus being this master communicator. We have all these groups of people that seem to just flock to Jesus, we got the Pharisees and the teachers, right? These are the people who are like, what's this young rabbi doing mixing up with the, with the crazies, right? That's their kind of position. And then you have like the disciples that are following Jesus, and you typically think of the disciples as the 12, but there's a bigger group. There's like 72 plus people that consider themselves disciples of Jesus, and they're following Jesus. And then you have these crowds that are just like, oh, did you hear Jesus in town? Cool, let's go check him out Friday night. Sounds like a good time. So they're like seeing Jesus, you know, if maybe he's coming through their town or whatever. But then you have these, these tax collectors and these sinners, right? These are the dregs of society according to the Jewish customs. These are the people that can't even go like within a block of the temple. They are so bad, right? The tax collectors are the ones that have sold their birthright. They have sold their Jewish heritage in order to make a profit with the Roman government. You want to talk about hatred. I mean, typically in the Bible, when the Pharisees talk about this group, they, like, they don't even classify them with normal sinners. They're like 
They're sinners who like it, you know? They make money off of their sin. And, and these individuals were wealthy. They were very, very wealthy because of what they did. But then you have this other group. This is the group that are just like, lives are a wreck. You know, like, like everybody's life's a little a wreck, but their life's like publicly a wreck. Everyone knows it. Everyone sees it. These are like the prostitutes, the, the, the homeless people that, that haven't had a job in 10 years. These are like the criminals, the people that might steal something if you invite them over. These are the people that are like, you want to keep them away. They're drawn to Jesus. And they sit at his feet and they elbow for a better seat so they can really hear what he says. So he's got them all together. And Jesus, the master communicator, with two sentences, gets them all agreeing with each other. How incredible is that? In the first, the first part of the parable, he says, hey, you know like when you have 100 sheep and one goes wandering off, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, I know, I know, those sheep, crazy. They're, they're actually dumber than chickens, I've found out. So they're, they're not until everyone agrees, yeah, those sheep, everyone know a shepherd or was a shepherd, and everybody knows. Well, the second part of the parable is the same way. He just does it in a new way. So he gets everybody to agree, and then he gives them his punchline. And they all go, no, that can't be. And then he gives it to them again. He gives them in a different way. And then he gives them the punchline, and they go, no, that can't be. And this is the way Jesus, the master communicator, teaches his audience. So here it is. This is what he says. Verse Eight of chapter 15, Jesus says this, or suppose, because he's continuing his, his story, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my, last, my lost coin." And everybody knows, everybody knows this part. Yes, everyone knows what the coin was. The coin that he's talking about, it's, it's actually translated in there as the drachma. The drachma is basically a day's wage. Okay, so this is like a day's wage. So you have somebody with 100 sheep, they're pretty wealthy, or, or, or at least more wealthy. And then you have somebody with 10 days saved coins. They're not super wealthy. So Jesus is saying, it, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. When you lose something of value, it's a big deal to you. Just like when you lose a sheep, you leave your flock, and you go get it, and you bring it back. It's an investment. It makes money for you, and if it's damaged, it's not going to make money for you. It's the same way that, that if you got ten little coins, and one of them goes missing, you're going to do everything in your power to collect, to go find that coin. You're going to light a lamp. In your house, in dark houses, small windows, that sort of thing. So light a lamp so you can see all the, the cracks and crannies and corners and under everything. And you're going to sweep the house and look for that coin. And it doesn't stop there. Because when you lose something of value, subsequently, you don't go and, like, count the other nine. Ooh, I love the nine. I'm not going to forget about the one that I lost, but I'm going to count. No, you're going to go look for that nine, that, te that, that tenth coin. And then you call your friends. Because when you lose something of value, you generally tell people. Like if I lost a credit card, we talked about this last week. If I lost a credit card and I was over at your house for any extended period of time, I'd be like, hey, did I leave my credit card at your house? Hey, remember we were at that restaurant together and I, and I paid, because I'm super generous. Remember I paid and, and did it? 
did I leave it there? I'm going to call you. I'm going to ask you. And you're going to go, no, I think I remember you sticking it back in your wallet. Okay, okay. I'm going to keep looking. When you lose something of value, you look for it. <laughs> it's pretty simple. He hits them with it once. They agree. Yep, yep. Sheep walks off. You got to go find it. He hits them again. When you lose a coin, you go find it. And there's this cool, I don't know, interesting, maybe is a better word, um, a theory about this little part of the parable. And, and, and back in the first century, there was um, dowries, which we're not going to really get into specifically right or wrong dowry, but, but a woman who was available for marriage would generally put her dowry, especially if it was coins, as a headdress. And she'd wear that dowry around to kind of say, look it, I'm available, and, you know, this is what you get. <laughs> so don't you want that? It's, it's a way of kind of almost advertising that they're available. It's a single ladies kind of thing. You don't go to the club, you, you put on a dowry. It's weird, I know. But that's something that would, might have been in play at this story. So everybody's going, oh, yeah, you know, if you had a dowry, and you had it in a headdress, and it was beautiful, and you were so proud of it, this is, this is your family's savings, and one of those coins fell out, you're not going to walk around with nine on your headdress. That's like walking around without a tooth, right? Like, no, 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 you want to go find it and put it back in. It's a stretch, I know. Believe it or not, theologians spend like long time discussing these sorts of things. This is a relatively poor woman. She, she doesn't have a lot of money. Her neighbors know that she doesn't have a lot of money. The storyteller Jesus knows, the Pharisees, everybody knows when he tells everyone how much, it's like, yeah, she's kind of poor. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich. If you lose something of value, that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And it's worth celebrating when you find that lost item. Jesus is showing once again that when, the, the one you, when you lose something of great worth, you care a lot about it, you go and you find it. Jesus tells the story after the story of the lost sheep, and we know his motivation for telling the story. He's describing his heart, and he's describing that he loves the lost. And he's doing it in a way that kind of forces everyone to agree with him. Jesus is pointing out that just because something is lost does not make it less valuable. Just think about that for a minute. Just because something is lost does not make it less valuable. Oh, how we do that in our, today, in, in our culture today. If it's lost, it's like out of sight, out of mind. I don't care. But if it's something of value, it doesn't matter. Just because that sheep is a couple miles away, confused and scared, doesn't make it any less valuable of a sheep. You go get it. You bring it back. It's a no-brainer. See, here's the point that Jesus is making. And this is a radical point that his, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fought against his whole ministry. Here's his point. God does not assign our worth as human beings, based on our actions. God does not assign our worth or our value based on our actions. Past actions, present actions, future actions, he doesn't do it. He does not assign value that way. And so when, when, when the, the, the thief in the crowd hears this, what he hears is, God values you. Because you're a deemed a sinner, God values you. And the thief is like, yes! 
You mean to tell me this rabbi actually values me or, or he's talking about a God that values me even though my life has been horrible? That's incredible. And then the other side of the aisle, you have the Pharisee going, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean to tell me that God values that guy when he's screwed his life away the entire time and I've been working so hard? Jesus, do you have any idea how hard it is to memorize the Torah and to memorize all the other laws they put on top of it and to not eat with sinners? Do you know how many sinners are out there? It's hard not to eat with them. I work so hard. I go to church every Sunday, and I even raise my hands in worship. So kind of a big deal. <laughs> I work hard. I try to treat my wife with respect. I try to treat my kids well. I try to make them uh, money to provide, and I'm not dishonest, and I'm not, um, I'm not bad. I try really hard, and you mean to tell me that the guy that just does whatever he wants has the same amount of value as me? That can't be right. And this is why when Jesus says the next part, the jaws again hit the floor. They hit the floor the first time, he pulled them back up, and they hit the floor a second guy. And this is what he says. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. right if your life has been a complete waste up until this point god thinks you're worth searching out and finding and celebrating when you're found your life is worth the same amount if you've worked incredibly hard your whole life to do all the right things you're worth the same your life is still as valuable there's no people that are more valuable or less valuable crazy everyone is valuable the same amount god does not assign your worth based on your actions you see god assigns your worth based on his actions and that's the truth that's what's throwing these people for a loop jesus is saying listen my father based your value based on what he did not based on what you do you see God is the master builder. I tell my kids this all the time. I tell them even when I struggle to believe it. God is a master builder. And you're his handiwork. You're the prize. You are the thing that he did the best. And this master builder, unlike me, doesn't make mistakes. So no, you weren't a mistake. No matter what your life has looked like and no matter what your life is going to look like, you are not a mistake. He made you perfectly. God's love for us is based on his decision to create us. And there's no difference in value whether we've been a Christian our whole lives or whether you've never heard of Jesus your entire life. Here's the gospel. God poured his love into you when he created you. And, and he didn't hold back. He didn't leave like a portion left over. Well, I'm going to give him two-thirds of a cup, but if he really lives for me, I'm going to give him the rest. It's not the way God operates. When God created you, he poured all of his love into you, and it filled you up, and it overflowed everywhere, and his love was everywhere. 
And he created each person, no matter what their life was like or will be like, the same way. All of his love. Every last drop. And that's the way he created us. It was us that wandered off in the storm. And God is going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm missing one. I got to go get him. He's in the storm. I got to go get him because I've poured everything I have into him. All of my love is in that sheep. I've got to go find him. So when we wandered off, Jesus Christ said, I'll give my life if you can find that sheep and bring him home. I'll give you my blood. I'll give you everything I have if the lost can be found. And that's what he did. And when the shepherd finds us in the storm and throws us over his, throws us over his shoulders and walks home and the door opens and there is a party waiting for us because all of his love was poured into you. So bring that up to the present. So why aren't the lost flocking to the church the way that they flocked to Jesus? That's a question we need to sit on for a minute. Why aren't they flocking to the church? You could go capital C church and not include Grace Chapel, or you could include Grace Chapel and say, why aren't the lost just banging down the door like they did with Jesus? What's the difference? Why aren't the lost flocking to the church? Are we loving the lost the way that Jesus did? Are we communicating the same message? I wonder. My, my wife and I watch TV for like 15 minutes a night because we have kids, you know. And in those 15-minute portions, I'm just kidding, it's a little bit longer than 15 minutes, but we found this show that I just am in love with. It's a survival show, and um, it's about contestants that try to survive for an extended period of time. My friend Jeremy recommended the show. Thank you, Jeremy. But the interesting thing that's going on with this show is these contestants try to survive in a desert or in a, in a desolate place by themselves. And however long they go is, is how long they go, and the last man standing gets a, or woman gets a big prize. And they're out there, and they, and, and they keep talking about the three codes that they have to crack. They have to crack the water code. You can only live for three days without water. You've got to have water in the wilderness. So if they crack that code, then they've got to have the second code, which is shelter. It's only a little bit more important than food, which is the third code. If you don't have shelter, you get hypothermia and you die pretty quickly. So second code, shelter. Third code, food. Water, shelter, food. You get those taken care of, and, and that's at about two weeks. And there's a number of contestants that have made it that far. But this one contestant keeps talking about the, the fourth code. The fourth quote is self. And he says, you know, if I sit here and I focus on me, and I focus on how I feel when I'm with my wife, and how I feel when I eat that big bucket of KFC chicken that I so desperately want, or how I feel when that horrible thing happened to me and that tragedy and I have this deep wound, he said, I'll go home right now. I can't, I can't take it. When I'm focused on myself, I cannot take it. And I get so overwhelmed, they have a panic button. They can hit the panic button, and the boat will be there in five, ten minutes or whatever. He said, so what I do is I keep working. <laughs> he made a dining room table. 
He made a chair. He made a cabin. He, made, uh, he has like a jug that produces running water for him to wash his hands. He's got a, a stovetop with gravel and fire. And he's, he's just going crazy because he knows that as soon as he starts focusing on himself, self is going to overwhelm him and he's going to tap out. That is so applicable to our situation right now. If we focus on ourselves, we cannot focus on the lost. And this is the beauty of what Jesus did. He focused on the lost to the point of giving himself up, even death on a cross. So when you focus on yourself, it paralyzes you. It paralyzes you. This is the idea this morning. This is the idea. You can't look for the lost if you're looking at yourself. You can't even look for them. You cannot look for the lost if you're looking at yourself. This boldness theme has, has been kind of working its way through my prayer life for the last couple of months, actually. And, and um, I think it was last month, maybe later last month, um, I, uh, I, I had this idea. So I was driving to a, 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 a guy's house that I needed to pick something up from, and I don't know the guy. And, and I really felt like the Spirit said, you know, you need to pray for this, this guy. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to pray for him. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, I'm, and I get out of the truck, and I'm like, ooh, I feel awkward. <laughs> this is going to be awkward. It's going to be an awkward conversation. I don't know what he's going to think of me. And, I, and it, I'm, I'm starting to feel myself just get helpless and, and crumble in fear. And the situation gets even more difficult. And I go, okay, can I pray for you? Ah. And the whole time, the mirror is like, I'm focused on myself, and it's so uncomfortable. And his response is like, not really. I mean, that's kind of what he said. Like, I don't really have anything for you to pray. I'm fine, man. You don't like me to pray for me, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Maybe I'll just pray a little bit later. Okay, bye. And I get in my car, and I drive off, and I'm like, that was so awkward. And God's like, okay, well, remember, remember when I said pray for him? Like, I meant like with him, like in the moment, not like when you're five miles away from him, you know? The problem is, is I'm staring at myself in the mirror, and I can't focus on the lost if I'm overwhelmed by my fear, by, by how awkward it's going to be, or what he's going to think of me, or what so-and-so's going to think of me, or what that's going to happen. I just get overwhelmed. The next week, we see a person who desperately needs prayer. And my little son said, Daddy, I think that person's hungry. Let's go give him some food. And a thought hit me. My son needs to know I put his hand on somebody and pray for them. So I said, Zach, here you go. Come on. So we walk over this person, and I march right up. Looks like you need prayer. What can I pray for you about? Well, these are the things that are struggling with. Let me pray for you right now. Zach, put your hand on her shoulder. And we prayed for that woman, and I was bold, and I was fearless. And my son prayed, and it was amazing. And the only difference was I did not have a mirror in front of me because I was too busy focusing on what Zach should learn. That's Jesus' philosophy. Don't mistreat self. Just set self aside for a minute. If you're looking at yourself, you cannot look for the lost. Paul says it in a different way, probably a better way. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. 
He's going to let us in on what's going on in Paul's heart. 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak the words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The apostle Paul is struggling with fear. He's saying, will you, church, will you pray for me? Pray that I'll declare this fearlessly. Because we hold the words of eternal life in our hands. Jesus gave us these things. And it's, it's the fact that God values us based on his actions. And that Jesus came and died for us so that we would be found. And that's power beyond anything this world could offer. But there's this little hang-up. And this little hang-up is self. And if we let self get in the way, we're going to be overwhelmed with the fear and the anxiety and the stress and the awkwardness. You can't look for the lost if you are looking at yourself. Are we loving the lost the way Jesus did? So pray with me and pray for me, please, that we will fearlessly share the gospel with these peoples that are lost in the storm. Pray that we can set self aside. Do you know why we can set self aside? Because God promises to care for self. He promises to care for me. And I can go, you know what? You're in good hands. I'm going to focus on the lost. So let's pray fearlessly now. Would you bow with me? Jesus. God, if, if, if I'm thinking about how I feel, even right now, I get scared. If I think about what might happen to me if I march up to someone and ask to pray for them or, or tell them about your love and I think about how I'm going to feel, I get overwhelmed. This is Moses' problem when he said, God, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't speak well. And God, even then you responded with, I'll give you the words. God, I ask that we step out boldly and we trust that you've got us, that you've got us in good hands. And we trust that you'll give us the words to say. And we can set ourselves aside for just a minute. And we can fearlessly, boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. Because, Lord, there's lost people out there, and they are in the storm, and they don't know what ends up, and they don't know what they're worth. God, but I know what they're worth, and you know what they're worth, and we as a church, we know what they're worth. So Lord, I ask again and again for boldness, for fearlessness, that we could describe your love to these people in a way that shows them their value, and that maybe for the first time, they can feel important, they can feel worthy because of the way you made them. take that first step, Lord, that second step, that third step into a bold life where we can describe your love. Jesus, we love you and we worship you for giving up your life so that we could be found. In your holy and precious name we